Um, our first reading is taken from John chapter 1, um, and I'll be reading from verses 1 to 9. It can be found on page 748 of your church Bible. May the Lord indeed give us ears to hear his word this morning and continue to breathe new life into our souls. Starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Our second reading is taken from the first letter from John, found on page 868 of your church Bible, reading from chapter 1, that's 1 John chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verses uh, 5 to 10. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Jesus and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Brenda and Basil. Well, let's uh, keep our Bibles open uh, at that passage and uh, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, it is our joy to worship you together and bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know us through and through and that your word is able first to find us then to speak to us and then to transform us and we pray that by your Holy Spirit this passage will come alive to our hearts and minds this morning and so we say speak Lord for your servants 
are listening and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's um, a recent Christian book uh, by the author Don Carson called Scandalous, uh, which is an excellent book all about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, in the book, he asks this question. He says, do you know what it's like to have a day when absolutely everything goes wrong? I suppose we had one of those this morning, didn't we, here in church? A day when the weather is hot and sticky and uh, the air conditioner doesn't work. Uh, You can't actually find two socks to match. Uh, The car doesn't start. Everyone at work is bad-tempered. And uh, when someone asks you about Christianity, you reply in a confusing and rather impatient way. When you get home, uh, your family is rather scratchy. And uh, as you fall asleep, uh, you pray a prayer like this. Dear God, it's been a rotten day. Uh, I don't know why exactly, but I'm sorry. Uh, Please forgive me. Please bless everyone. Amen. And then he says, um, a few days later, you have an absolutely marvellous day. Everything goes really well. Uh, It's cool, it's sunny. Family's happy. Uh, The car and the traffic are, are a breeze. People at work are actually fun to be with. And you get another opportunity to speak to someone about Jesus. And your comment is both clear and compelling. You get home and your family is just a joy to be with. And your final prayer goes something like this. Eternal and matchless God, we are full of gratitude for your mercies. We bow in your awesome presence. And your prayer goes on in a manner that's worthy of being included in the Book of Common Prayer. You finish by praying for all missionaries around the world, your children, uh, every cousin that you haven't prayed for for at least the last five years, And finally, you meditate on all the different names for Jesus in the New Testament as you fall peacefully asleep. This is what Don Carson says, quote, The sad reality is that both approaches to God are abominations. How dare we approach God on the basis of the kind of day that we've had? As if our entrance into his presence depends upon the circumstances of our life and not on the cross of Christ. And then he says this, no wonder we can't live effectively for Christ if we separate ourselves from doctrine and live on experience. End quote. Now that's a very good thought, isn't it? I think it is. Um, All of us, I think, naturally tend to separate doctrine from experience. Um, Our default position is to assess our relationship with God according to how our lives are going at the moment. When life becomes difficult, the objective truth of what God has done for you and me in Christ with all that that implies for our lives now and hereafter, is quickly forgotten. 
Now that may sound like a, a modern problem, it sounds terribly new age, but actually it's not a modern problem. Uh, it's the problem that was unsettling the churches in Asia Minor towards the end of the first century. It's the problem that John is addressing in this letter. Now last week uh, we saw that John begins his letter by saying that real Christianity is fellowship with God. And he says that we enter into that fellowship through faith in Jesus on the basis of the rock-solid testimony of the Apostles. And whenever we do find this fellowship in a local church, we also find real joy. But in John's day, um, there were troublemakers in the churches, uh, just as there often are today. And these people were claiming fellowship with God on an entirely different basis. And because that is so very dangerous, John begins his letter by exposing these false claims and reminding us of the conditions on which fellowship with God is actually possible. But he starts in the most unexpected way. You see, I think if you and I were writing this, I think we would probably start with the troublemakers and what they were saying. In other words, we would probably start with man, because, of course, that's what the culture does. Now, just think about it for a moment. Um, until a generation ago, most of the great universities around the world had a faculty of divinity. It used to be one of the most important faculties in the university. But now, of course, it's been renamed. It's now called the Faculty of Religion. And there's a reason for that. It's because, you see, in divinity, you're studying God. But in religion, you're studying man as a religious being. The starting point is completely different. But John won't have it. John starts with God. It's rather interesting that during his lifetime, the Apostle John uh, in the churches was referred to as Theologos, literally the theologian. And that's because after many decades of reflecting on everything that he'd experienced with Jesus and heard from Jesus, there was kind of a unique depth and a maturity in his teaching about God. And so while all the other New Testament writers tell us what God says and what God does, it seems to have fallen to John alone to tell us what God actually is. He does it in three simple sentences. We find the first one of these sentences in the Gospel where he tells us that God is spirit. You'll find that in John chapter 4, verse 24. And then a bit later on in this letter, he says that God is love. Chapter 4, verse 8. But because the word love is as frequently misunderstood today as it was then, he doesn't actually start with that. Now in this letter, John starts in verse 5, with one of the greatest 
theological statements in the whole Bible. God is light, in him is no darkness at all. Now what does that actually mean? Well, in scripture, light conveys two special ideas. First, it points to God as the unique source of truth and revelation. So, uh, you know in your own experience, when you go into a room, you turn on the light to see what's there. You wouldn't know otherwise. You could make an inspired guess. But when you go into the room to look for your car keys or whatever it happens to be, unless you turn the light on, all that's going to happen is you're going to stub your toe and you're not actually going to find what you're looking for. Now, it's only when you turn the light on that you see things as they really are. It's what the psalmist means when he says to God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He's saying, your word shows me life as it really is. Without it, I wouldn't know where to start and I'd very quickly get into difficulties. But secondly, God's light is a way of talking about God's holiness. So, there's another place in the Gospel of John where John is talking about Jesus and he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So when John says, you see, God is light, he's saying these two things. That God is the source of all truth and he is perfectly holy. But of course that gives us a problem. Because we like the first, but we have real difficulties with the second. I mean, all of us here this morning like the idea of being in fellowship with the God of truth. That's absolutely marvellous. But to say that I'm in fellowship with the God that is holy means, of course, that I too must be holy. Couldn't be in fellowship with him otherwise, could I? And, of course, that's much more challenging. So, for that reason, it's really important for us to see that this statement, God is light, isn't just a nice idea that John dreamed up in his study on Sunday morning before church. In verse 5, he tells us that this great truth about God is the message he received from Jesus. In other words, it's non-negotiable. If if we're Christians here this morning, it means that there's absolutely no room for you and I to say, well, quite honestly, there are other sources of light that make far more sense to me and are a great deal more convenient. We're not at liberty to say that. It also means that this statement, God is light, 
must be the reality against which all claims to fellowship with God have to be tested. And that's actually what John does in verses 6 to 10. The troublemakers were claiming to have fellowship with God and so John tests their claims by, as it were, holding them up to the light of God. And as he does so, of course, he exposes the reality. So, what are these tests that John applies? Um, If we know that, well then we can use them to test our own relationship with God and also the claims of any troublemakers that might arise amongst us. John mentions three of these tests. Number one, the conduct test. The conduct test, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Now the word walk is a very significant word. It's, It's describing a continuous movement in a particular direction. I suppose it's what today we would call a lifestyle. So John is saying that a claim to have fellowship with God while pursuing an unrighteous lifestyle must by definition be false. It fails the conduct test. You see, if I'm walking in darkness, how can I possibly be in fellowship with the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. My conduct proves I'm heading in exactly the opposite direction. Now, the interesting thing is, what does John have to say about the person who makes a claim like this? And I find this particularly striking. Remember, will you, that John is known as the Apostle of Love. I guess most congregations today, when they're choosing a new minister, would probably rather have John than, let's say, the Apostle Paul. John would probably be first in the queue. So just listen again, will you, to what the Apostle of Love says in verse 6. If you claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in the darkness, you lie. You are not living by the truth. You are false. You are unreal. You are not the real thing. Oh dear. (laughs) That's very strong language, isn't it? I mean, we might expect Paul to say something like that, but we're not expecting John to do it. Comes as a bit of a surprise. Perhaps we wouldn't really like John to be our minister after all. But what does he actually mean? What kind of darkness does John have in mind? Is he talking here about gross immorality or is he thinking of something different? Well, the clue, I think, as always, is in the context and that is in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
Now that's a very, very important verse. Verse 7 is saying that if somebody claims to be walking in the light, walking in fellowship with God, the first question we ought to ask them is, well, okay, is this person in fellowship with other believers? Does he actually love his brothers and sisters at church? And you see, John is saying this because the troublemakers were going around saying, look, I can have fellowship with God without actually having fellowship with other Christians. And John says, well, if that's how you're living, then the truth is, you're walking in darkness. Now, why does John start the letter like this? What is the underlying issue here? Well, surely it is that if you're walking in darkness but claiming to walk in the light, what you're actually doing is redefining sin. It seems, you see, that in John's day, the troublemakers did not consider their their refusal, their reluctance to love other Christians as sin. No, no, they justified it. They excused it on the grounds of their supposed superior spirituality. But John shows us the true picture. Just to flick over the page to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God... And we say, yes, okay, but how can we tell their faith is genuine? And John replies, everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. (laughs) In other words, you cannot truly claim to love God without loving his children. The The two always go together, you cannot separate them. And the point is that when we redefine sin and yet fail to be convicted of that as sin in our own lives, that is evidence, brothers and sisters, that we are not walking in the light. So how do we walk in God's light? Well, throughout this little letter, John is going to keep hammering away on the same point. That Christians who live in God's light, will be in fellowship with other Christians. And I think we have to add that they don't actually find it difficult to walk in fellowship with them. That's why John says in verse 7, if we walk in the light, we do have fellowship with one another. And I think the point is, you see, that the light shows us the way ahead and it enables us to go forward in peace and in harmony with one another. And the opposite is true. When Christians separate from one another, it is always true that somebody is walking out of fellowship with Christ. 
Now let me be clear, that doesn't mean that we're always going to agree on absolutely everything. That actually isn't the main point of New Testament fellowship. But the essence of New Testament fellowship, the thing that we cannot throw overboard, is that we love one another and that we value one another. And that means that we can, we can agree to differ in some areas without actually cutting the ties that bind us together as sons and daughters of the light. But there's something more here. Please notice that John makes an explicit connection between walking in God's light and being purified from sin. Now, how does that work? Well, of course, when we walk uh, in the light of his truth, God reveals more and more of our sin to us. It's rather an uncomfortable experience for a new Christian to discover that happening. But it's why the greatest saints throughout history have always been conscious of themselves as the worst sinners. Think of Paul in 1 Timothy. I'm the, I'm the greatest of sinners. But you see, God promises that when we bring our sins to him, however deep and however dark they might be, however hidden from other people they might be, then the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin, no exceptions. And of course, friends, that is the only basis for anybody having fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is never about the kind of day that we've had. It's about the day Christ died. And what John wants us to grasp, you see, is that that's also the basis for our fellowship with one another. Now, one commentator rather brilliantly describes this as the paradox of belonging to a Christian community. What does he mean? Well, he says that the readier we are, the more willing we are to confess our sins and our faults to our Heavenly Father and to seek his forgiveness, the closer our fellowship becomes with our fellow believers. Do you know that in your own experience? Why is that? Well, you see, when we meet together and we confess our sins, we know, because Scripture tells us, that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin, no matter how dark, no matter how deep. We know that the blood of Jesus purifies us completely. And when we know that that's happened to us, well, of course, immediately we find fellowship with other people who've had the same experience, don't we? That's the conduct test. But secondly, John applies the character test in verses 8 and 9. The character test. Now, three times in this little paragraph, John introduces what he wants to say with the same phrase. Did you notice it? If we claim he does it in verse 6, he does it in verse 8, and he does it again in verse 10. 
Now, no doubt, of course, that uh, the troublemakers were making extravagant false claims about their fellowship with God. But the use of the word we is highly significant, don't you think? Remember, will you, that when John wrote this little letter, he was probably in his 80s. Uh, He'd seen more of church life than most of us here this morning. And he knows that under certain circumstances, every Christian can be tempted to make these false claims. And none more so than the claim in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin. Now, of course, uh, verses 8 and 9 are amongst the best-known verses in the whole letter. Uh, We hear them every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And precisely because these words are so very familiar to us, we might not realise just how vulnerable we all are to making this false claim ourselves. After all, I mean, which of us here this morning doesn't long to become more like Christ, doesn't long to be lifted beyond sin and temptation? We all want that. But you see... If that desire is not motivated and directed by the light of God's truth, well, of course, it can lead us to a completely false assessment of our own spiritual condition. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as you know, was a famous Baptist minister at the end of the 19th century, and he was once confronted after the Sunday morning service by a man who claimed to be without sin. Spurgeon was intrigued and he invited this man home for dinner. And uh, after hearing this man justify this claim, Spurgeon picked up the glass of water by his uh, tray and threw it in the man's face. Uh, Understandably, uh, the man became very angry (laughs) and he confronted and challenged Spurgeon about this desperate lack of courtesy. To which Spurgeon replied, Ah, you see... The old man within you is not dead. He had simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of cold water. Uh, There's a popular version of the same thing today. Uh, I think you hear it probably every week. It begins with the words, um, I know I'm not perfect, but... And the message beneath those words is, don't you dare call me a sinner. And friends, you see, when we start thinking of ourselves like that, verse 8 is John, the apostle of love, coming alongside us to say, my dear friend, have you any idea how self-deceived you are? See, there is no greater self-deceit than to say, I'm not a sinner. When you say that, you have failed the character test. And that's why John goes on to say, the truth is not in us. What does he mean? Well, he's not saying that we're deliberately lying when we make a claim like that. He's talking about reality. He's saying, get real! If you think you're fine as you are, you are totally self-deceived. But praise God, there's a way back. And it's there in the wonderful promise 
of verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, there's no finer verse in the whole Bible. Many people think that when they confess sin that it's going to be a negative experience, that somehow God is going to be still basically against them. But that is not true. Confession is a wonderful, wonderful release. You see, verse 9 is saying that if we confess our sin, that is, if we agree that whatever it is we've said or done is wrong and that we are guilty, God is faithful and he is just in forgiving it. In other words, we can have complete assurance of the forgiveness of our sins based on the character of God. And his character, of course, is unchanging. He is always faithful, he is always just. But let's just pause for a minute and think, well, why is it that John uses those two particular words? In what sense is God faithful or just? Well, of course, to understand the word faithful, we need to remember that from earliest times, God had promised to forgive sin whenever it was confessed to him. Uh, You might remember, for example, in Jeremiah, that God said of all his children, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. Now, quite clearly... If God said that, but then refused to forgive our sins, well, he would be being unfaithful, wouldn't he? But he isn't. He is faithful. And because he has promised to forgive our sins, when we confess, that's precisely what he does. And he is also just. I think this is even more marvellous. You see, the forgiveness of our sins is actually a matter of justice to Almighty God. When we confess, you see, what happens is God says, I would be unjust not to forgive your sins because the debt's already been paid. I can't demand a second payment. To do that would be completely unjust. So you see, contrary to what most people think, God is at his most just when he pardons and forgives those who believe in Jesus. But it all starts with me seeing myself as I really am, a sinner in daily need of forgiveness and grace to live the Christian life. That's the character test. And lastly, John exposes the third, and I'm sorry to say this, the darkest of these false claims in what I'm calling the conscience test. Verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. 
Now, this is not only the darkest of these three claims, it's actually the one that's most common in our culture. Uh, for well over a century now, the, uh, the evolutionary humanists have been telling us that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with human nature in general and with you and me in particular. And you see the evidence of that in uh, titles of popular psychology books such as I'm OK, You're OK. And you see it in the, the repackaging of behaviour that used to be classified as sin by everybody. So, what our parents used to describe as adultery is now described as, well, just having an affair. Um, theft? Well, theft has become enjoying the perks of the job. Uh, selfishness has become standing up for my rights. The last thing we human beings will do in 2014 is admit that we sin. Our consciences have been seared with a hot iron. But John says that when we say we haven't sinned, we make God to be a liar. Now again, that's very, very strong language, isn't it? Do you remember back in verse 6, John said that it was we, us who were the liars, we were lying. But when we deny the universal sinfulness of the human race, we make God out to be a liar. Because, of course, God has said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you deny that, what are you doing? You're calling God a liar. And to say that, of course, is extremely serious. It's more than that. It's a tragedy. Because after the first two false claims we've looked at, there was a way back. Rescue and forgiveness were possible. But notice, will you, that after this third false claim, John puts a full stop. Now, the message is clear, I think. To the person who is so resistant to the grace of the Gospel as to deny the fundamental truth of human sinfulness, God says... Well, quite clearly, the word isn't in you. I have nothing more to say. Do you remember when uh, Jesus was brought before Herod at the end of his uh, trial? Jesus had nothing more to say. Earlier, of course, we, we saw this in our first reading in the prologue to John's Gospel. God had sent John the Baptist as a witness to the light. Do you remember that? He sent John the Baptist to Herod to warn him about his sin. What did Herod do? Well, he responded by having John executed. He switched off the light. But when Jesus stood before him, Herod plied him with questions and Luke in his Gospel said, Jesus gave him no answer. Now remember, will you, that John here is writing to people inside the church. And I think what he's saying in verse 10 is extremely chilling. He's saying that it's perfectly possible for you and me to sit in church week after week, but never to have taken God's word seriously. You've never actually done anything with it. You're pretty much where you were 
25 years ago, you're still clinging to the same old sins. The only difference is you're not seeing them as sins anymore. And no matter what is said in church on Sunday morning, it's just not going to penetrate you. And John says, if that's where you are, God has nothing more to say to you. His word has got no place in your life. And so, friend, if you in any way recognise yourself in verse 10, I do want to plead to you this morning to pray the only prayer that God will hear from your lips, which is, be merciful to me, a sinner. Start there. Start there. Humble yourself before God. Come out of the darkness and a whole new life can open up for you walking in the light of God's truth. And if you do, God promises you two things. They're both in verse 7. First of all, you'll begin to enjoy real fellowship with other believers who are walking in the same direction. And second, God will start to purify you from your sin. He will start to change you. That is God's promise. And verse 7 says, it's guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have made a way for us to have fellowship with you by the shed blood of Jesus. You have filled our lives with light and hope. What an awesome privilege. Help us to cherish it and also to cherish our fellowship with one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.